this just in. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And I'm Tony. And welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. Joining us this week is Mr. Anthony Black. How are you, Anthony? Uh, I'm very well, except uh, I think only my mum calls me Anthony anymore. So uh, I feel like I'm about to be admonished for for something I've done wrong. (laughs) No worries. Um, That's what it says on your CV. (laughs) Which is how we carefully vet and and sort of maintain our guests here. you submitted in triplicate. Um, it wasn't on Blue Leaf, um, so you know we we had a lot of careful consideration. Your, here. your mother had a lot of nice things to say about you. I mean, including her you, as a reference was, yeah, was you, very you very recommended. Good, thank you, thank you, Barbara. That's good. Just for listeners, myself and Tony know each other because we've we've podcasted together in the past, actually on um, the Xcast, uh, which is great. It's a wonderful X Files podcast. Tony's been very gracious and, and had me on a couple of times to talk about the X Files, which is a show that we both love. But um, you do a lot more than that, actually. So you've got your. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where we can find you and what you're up to and stuff like that? Just introduce yourself to listeners. Well, thank you for your kind words about the Xcast. I do too much. I think is, <laughs> is what most people would agree. Um, yeah, I uh, I've got the Xcast, which uh, people can find on Twitter at the X underscore Cast, and that's my X Files podcast going through the entire show as we head towards season eleven next year, which is very exciting. Um, I'm on Twitter at Black Hole Media, and I write for various things like Flickery Myth, Film Sclump. Film Score Monthly, um, and I guest on various different podcasts. And I've just launched a Star Trek podcast on mm, on uh, the Trek FM podcast network uh, called Primitive Culture with uh, my uh, friend Duncan Barrett, who's a writer and a historian. And we're talking about the history and culture of uh, the world that influences Star Trek. So our, our first episode just, just launched this week, and it was about... Um, Robert Oppenheimer and the characters in Star Trek that have been analogous to Oppenheimer. So we're doing all kinds of historical things linked to Trek. Um, And the response has been good so far. So we're really enjoying doing that. We're a few episodes in now. Um, So yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. So that, that's that, those are my main creative pastimes right now. Way too much. (laughs) I don't know how I pack it all in. And making myself and Andrew seem very lazy by comparison. Um, Especially me. But don't worry. What we'll do is we'll have all those links up in our show notes as well. um, Just for people to check them out. And we'll we'll mention them again at the end of the podcast. That that, that Star Trek uh, podcast sounds worth checking out. It really does. And we're sort of saying this here from a desk that's strewn with Star Trek textbooks. Um, textbooks <laughs> yeah actual academic textbooks that's how nerdy um, we are here amazing uh, but anyway we're here today to talk about um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 which entered the IMDb last weekend it was a bit of a surprise because it was released um, in the UK at the start of May and then it was released in the US a week later which is, is something that the major studios are doing now they're sort of um, staggering releases so that they can release them during the school holidays in the UK they can sort of delay it then and catch the the big weekend in the states as well. So they, Disney have been Disney have had a lot of success with this. For example, they did a couple of years ago with um, Alice in Wonderland with the Tim Burton version with Johnny Depp, which was terrible but made so much money. Um, and they did that with Guardians really? as well. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two is that it didn't break into the IMDb 250 on the weekend it was released in the UK, but it did break in the following weekend when it was released in the US. And it's, it's interesting to sort of see the, the reaction. It seems like European critics have been sort of more cautious about it. While sniffy? It's, I wouldn't say sniffy, but more sort of like, ah, it's grand. And, and, and sort of in America, I think the response has been much more enthusiastic. So we're all Irish and British critics here. So what did you make of it, Tony? I, I enjoyed it. 
Uh, <laughs> I say that with a um, a level, a little level of caution in my voice. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was really good fun, but I don't think it's quite that what the first film was for m- m- several different reasons, really. Um, and I'm sure as we get more into discussing, we'll, you know, we'll illuminate those. But I think a little bit of the magic wasn't there this time round. It was overall a really good Marvel film, but it wasn't quite the the breakout, like I say, magic that the first film was. I've actually had this discussion with, with a number of people here, and it's, it's interesting. A lot of the argument from people who really like the film are, are people who are sort of explaining why they think the film didn't land as well as the first is that it maybe didn't have the same element of surprise as the original did. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people who had no idea who the Guardians of the Galaxy were who are like, oh, fantastic, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, it's a comic book. I really like it this time around because they're 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 aware of this kind of phenomenon it has become. But I sense that if 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 this Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two was a standalone movie, I don't think it would have generated the same amount of excitement. I suppose part of it is that it uh, didn't come as a like it didn't have that factor of surprise but i think another part of it is the 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 kind of sequelitis they're they're kind of obliged to make a movie um and and then they 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 have to kind of try their best to 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 make it good which i mean i yeah i i I thought it was okay but 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 no it, it it i i i agree i agree with tony it it didn't really um have the same impact as you 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 have to i guess you have to kind of try harder with uh, a sequel with a sequel yeah well i mean i i would go so far as say like the the first film we'll talk very briefly about but it was one of the things about it was it was just so out of left field you mentioned nobody knew who the guardians were they're like they're a comic book team from the 70s but the the version and the film was based on like some some well it was based on a version from 2008 which is very recent as far as these things go and nobody they were a bit of a deep cut i mean for 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 a comic book um fan maybe no no but i mean my argument is that it gave them it gave james gunn uh, a lot of freedom and gunn is a director who has like one of my issues with the marvel films is that they're all very samey um all the marvel films have that same sort of pattern they have that same sort of cinematography they have that same sort of choreography even they have that same pattern they have that same sort of rhythm and beat and structure and the guardians while it, it, it hit many of the big beats i think that it was just so off kilter it was like a can I, can, I, can I say yeah. something about one of the features of Marvel movies that I've really enjoyed in recent years? The beginning credits where the where the Marvel um, credit comes up, I've always really liked that. They just changed it. Well, they changed it a couple of films ago, I think. Did they, did, Tony? Yeah, well, I hadn't I hadn't seen it before. Maybe, maybe I've missed the last couple of... Um, although I don't think I have. I suppose I didn't see Civil War. I don't. I. I don't like it. I don't. I, they, they, <laughs> I don't like change. I, no. I. 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 like. I like the I think, old I think, one. I think, where I think it's, that's when it changed. I think it might have been Civil um, War. Possibly it's flashing through um, <laughs> all of these uh, comic book pages, and yeah, I. I, I used to find myself uh, kind of excited. I think they, like. I think consi- considering how nostalgic kind of the 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 what comic book movies are. I, I, I know. I know, and yeah, comic book movies in general. You would think they would. Um, it's like it's like changing the music to match of the day, or 
or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, to be fair, that that logo's only existed since no, what, 2008. No, it's true, but it was good. And I personally quite liked it. And I, 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 I really don't like the other one. It's really... There was, there was something a little timeless about having the, the, the comic books and kind of flicking yeah. through it. Where it's like, here's some movies that we made five years ago. And some pictures of some script pages as well. Yeah. Uh, I do like that Bruce Banner can't get his own feature film, but he can get a mention in the Marvel logo via text. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a bit kind of... I, I thought it was... It's, it's kind of self-congratulatory over how successful these movies have been, rather than kind of harking back to the source material, I guess. Which is not something that I'm sacred about, but like I say, I, I like the credits the way it was. <laughs> Change <laughs> it back. I like that Andrew is sort of the least comic booky person or least yeah. sort of movie sort of like cinephile person in the conversation. It just but he's really good. But he's like, know? no change. <laughs> no it made ch- me f- it made me feel excited for the for the movie about to come, but I was I felt really put off. You mentioning change, I think I'd make one point about uh, the original Guardians, which is that I think it did what Avengers Assemble did, or the Avengers in the US, in that it kind of changed your perception of, of what these could be to an extent. I mean, I still think the first Avengers is the best one of all of them so far, because that too had that level of magic to it, and it, and it had that real stamp on it by Joss Whedon. And everyone came out of that film going, wow, that was just possibly the epitome of what a comic book movie can do, up to, up to that point at least. And I think Guardians, and it took us by surprise, you know, and it, and nobody quite expected, I think, that film to be that good. Yeah. And then... It's like nobody when... expected Batman v Superman to be that bad. <laughs> yeah, we said, well, well, yeah, no. I mean, Zack Snyder, hmm. <laughs> Zack Snyder is an auteur, damn it. He has a unique vision. <laughs> I know what you mean. It, but with Guardians, Guardians was the same thing in that it, like you, what we've said, it came out of nowhere with a director who hadn't produced a film. Like Joss Whedon was very, you know, very well regarded for years, but he'd never made that. He'd never made a film that big with that such scope. And with James Gunn, it was even more the case. You know, he, he created something that just shocked people and just did something that hadn't been done in a way before. And I think that's why the second film doesn't quite hit home. There's a lot, there's, it's, it's com- there's components in it that are the main reasons why I don't think it's as good. But in terms of it having that impact and that, wow, take take notice, that's not quite there in this one. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll get into sort of the, the big elements about why it didn't work or, or sort of the, the, the nitty gritty in a, in a moment. But just it's funny that you should mention Avengers as a game changer and something that was usually influential and sort of changed the scope of what comic books can do. Because I actually think that's maybe one of my issues with, with Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is that it in some ways feels very much like an Avengerized version of the original Guardians of the Galaxy in that... After Joss Whedon became this huge influential figure in the in the sort of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you got this this approach to writing character and dialogue where absolutely every member of your cast had to be snarky and had to be cool and happened, you know, had to have this sort of emotional distance and this sort of like pity one liners and banter back and forth that sort of has a an almost great and ironic distance between the text. Like I was watching the climax of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and I was thinking, how much of the dialogue from Peter Quill could you put in the mouth of, say, Rocket? Mm. And it would work just as well. Like, how many times in the film, like, Drax does have his unique voice, to be fair. Gamora has a unique voice in that it's very matter of fact. But a lot of the characters in there seem to almost have 
like you need a snarky person in the scene so you have rocket or you have quill and you can just swap the lines back and forth and it would work i disagree with that okay. i i've i've i i felt like mo- mo- most of the characters were very distinct i don't know i i i i i feel like Rocket Rocket had very much his his his. I was kind of thinking like, at various think they... points in the movie. Why? What? Like why? Why are people putting up with Rocket? He what? What is he kind of? What is? We'll he... probably talk a bit more about yeah. that. Like, um, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So no, that that's sort of my take on Where, it. But... Whereas yeah, P- Peter Quill had had um has this kind of. You don't uh, think people ask the face, same thing na- about Peter Quill? Uh, naivety, kind of, uh, to 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 him. Okay. That yeah, that that uh, like is less uh, jaded. Yeah. All right, settle a bet there, Tony. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. <laughs> I'm, I'm... <laughs> so it's like it's like when couples fight in a restaurant. Um, cool. Well, in that case, then what we'll do is we'll probably ask. So first of all, um, did we enjoy the film? So we've sort of talked about that. Do we think that it belongs on the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time? Like that big monolithic sentiment. And I, I get the sense from the way the conversation's gone that we know the answers already. But Tony, do you think it belongs on the IMDb's top 250 movies? I'm afraid not. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd put it in the top 2,500 movies, if I'm honest. That, that, that's, that's really harsh. Um, that, but there are a lot of movies. There are a lot of movies, and there are a lot of really good movies. And I think this is a good movie, and I think it's a good to a very good movie, but I don't think it's this good, I'm afraid. And I would, I would even say, like, we were talking about, like, myself and Andrew watched John Wick Chapter 2 made the list recently, and we were like, there's no way that this movie belongs to be on that list. And yeah. I would argue it's a much better movie than Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what about you, Andrew? What do you think? I don't think I don't think it belongs to be under this, but we we've seen some of the other movies that have come in, and it's kind of followed. And and you mentioned John Wick Volume Two. I think it's 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 kind of been a, um in the in the same vein as that. Actually, come to think of it, we we watched um Logan. That did that didn't have the uh, the they <laughs> going back to the credits thing. Didn't yeah. they just have the old one? Well, that's a Fox film. Oh. That's a 20th century Fox film. Oh, okay. Um, this I, is... I've exposed myself. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> not, not indoors, Andrew. Not indoors. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so... it's an audio medium. Yes, it is. An... <laughs> the medium is the message. However, Andrew feels like podcasting to make himself feel comfortable uh, is his own business. It's uh... like podcasting with Drax. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll segue. <laughs> we'll segue gently into the spoilers, and we'll talk about the film in a bit more depth. Spoiler zone. So, Tony, what was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 about for you? Well, it was principally, I think, about... It, it was. I'm going to say this in a Vin Diesel accent. It was about family. <laughs> yes! It's another Vin Diesel family movie. <laughs> family franchise. Yeah, yeah. And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible Vin Diesel impression, actually. It's really bad. It sounded more like uh, Vin Diesel than than, uh, Baby Groot did. I'm Groot. (laughs) In fairness. There was an article, uh, I think, or or a few articles that have been about how Fast and Furious 8 and Guardians of the Galaxy 2 have the same plot, which I think is, you know, silly in itself. But it does have the same theme. It, it, It is about family. It is about... A a well, fathers and sons 
you know, more specifically, even, even, you know, even Cat Stevens is in it, you know. So it's very, very specifically about fathers and sons, but it is about the wider family unit and it is about a family learning to, you know, grow with each other and, you know, and, and, and becoming this dysfunctional unit to the point where you have the, the mother, the father, the, you know, the uncle, <laughs> the, the crazy uncle, the teenage, the teenager growing up, you know, th- things like that. It has that overarching theme to it wrapped around a big, silly sci-fi story, really. And is, is Peter Quill Dominic Toretto? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he'd have to be, yeah. He's a much more emotionally expressive okay. Dominic Toretto, though. Yeah. Kurt Russell is um, whoever Charlize Theron's character is, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Ironically, Kurt Russell is not Kurt Russell um, yeah, in all yeah. of this. The, the, yeah. Um, Mr. Nobody. Yeah, pretty much. But um, actually, it's it's funny that you should uh, mention that that idea of sort of family going through because that's actually something I really liked about the film, and it, it's a very simple film, as you point out. It's a very simple theme and stuff. But I like that the the first movie was essentially, and and one of the things I thought the first one was was also a very simple film, in that it was about basically this this young boy who lost his mother and who then sort of drifted off into space, except not metaphorically, actually literally, and became had this sort of arrested development where he became like this, he lived out this fantasy of becoming like Harrison Ford, basically. And one of the things I like about the second film is it builds organically on that almost. So it's, this time it's about that son meeting his deadbeat space dad. And like, Kurt Russell as the planet Ego is <laughs> the did, most like, wonderful if, deadbeat space dad. If if it wasn't a sequel, they would have called it Deadbeat Space Dad. But but it is like because Volume One <laughs> of seven hundred. But it is because he's he's the guy who suddenly shows up into his son's life and he's cool and he's got a cool car and he's got a cool planet and he's living with this cool weird little chick who helps him sleep at night because you know whatever. Um, and he's like, I want us to spend time together. I want us to be a unit. I want us to play stuff. I've got plans and ambitions. Yeah. And then it gradually turns out that the douchebag who left. His his mother is still the douchebag who left yeah. his mother. He's only interested in his son as a literal extension of himself. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't actually take very much for him to uh, for him to convince <laughs> Peter Quill that he that he that he's okay and can be trusted. I, I think the 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 cool planet <laughs> and the spaceship and 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 the slave yeah. um, did did a lot of that work. But I, at the same time, I also love how it doesn't take much for for ego to earn Peter's trust. It also doesn't take a lot for ego to just throw it away. It's like, oh, by the way, we're the power of God. we've got the power of gods. That's awesome. I also gave your mother cancer that's not awesome but i i do actually i like the the thematic purity of it that you sort of suggested there that like it's a very simple arc and it's almost weirdly enough a very relatable arc in that yeah, i think yeah. i mean he 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 could have revealed that part about about the, the brain the, cancer the brain cancer much later on like while they were subsuming the universe it's <laughs> like oh by the way um, I gave your mother brain cancer. It's like as soon as we're finished subsuming the universe, we'll I'm talk not going to talk to you. Are, oh, we are going to talk. Okay, <laughs> I it's imagine- like I'm done with you. It's like oh, but we'll be one. Yeah, <laughs> you'll you'll be me. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I actually I did I thought of I liked that thematic purity. One of the things I didn't like about it was the sort of structure of it. Like I feel like in making the sequel, I feel like somebody watched The Empire Strikes Back. And was like, that's an excellent story structure where we're going to split up the team. We're going to have them ghost their separate ways. We're going to have it look like maybe they're breaking up and they're going to come back together at the end. And they're going to fight the big bad guy and it's going to be awesome. But also there's going to be like a really sad ending and it's going to be very emotionally affecting. And it feels like they they looked at the elements of why it worked. And it's worked in other films like, say, Brian Singer's X-Men 2. 
but I don't think they earned it. I don't think they understood why it worked. Like one of the things I really didn't like was Rocket. Rocket in this film. I didn't like the, the yeah. subplot involving Rocket. I, I wrote down Kill Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> I I, th- I think I think the the one character who suffers this film well actually no, there's two characters. I think the first character on a basic level is Drax because Drax gets nothing to do pretty much except go <laughs> constantly all the way through the film. There, you know, there is the stuff with Mantis and the, you know, the, the, the little thing going on there. But Drax is really sidelined uh, in this. I liked I liked the stuff with Mantis. I like I liked it as an alternative to like the the ego and Quill thing. Mm. I like the idea that she's a surrogate replacement for his dead daughter. Like there's the really and it's a really small touch, but at the climax where he's being swallowed by ego, despite the fact that he's referred to her as hideous and ugly and repulsive. Like even when he's being swallowed by the planet, he still lifts her up so that she might have a better chance of surviving while he's being swallowed up. Like I, I actually found the Drax stuff quite sweet. They, surprisingly, they have an unspoken uh, romance. I, 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 no, they don't have a romance. That's, <laughs> you got a no, romance. It's, a, it's it's it, it's an <laughs> we unspoken watching... thing. No, that that's the other relationship, Andrew. That's the no, other no, green I, person. I, I, that's I, the other green person. Depending on how many of these Guardians of the Galaxy movies they make, and presumably they're going to make tons. Um, well, they're actually only going to make three. Gunn has said after the third one, he's done with the team. And they're not going to cross over with other people. Well, they're going to cross over, obviously, into because everybody have on they Earth. Said when they're going to stop making Spider-Man movies. Like, well, no, no, they're just going to reboot. I have them. no problem with Spider-Man movies, but I I don't think I'm the first person to say how many reboots, really? Yeah, like like three it's reboots like, in ten years or whatever. Yeah, but. it's like like when they they um uh, kept on doing the Incredible Hulk. Like over and well, over it's it's again. okay because they're no longer doing the Incredible <laughs> Hulk, Andrew. You're um you got but, your Philip Banner, but. but I feel like at some point um Gamora is going to guess with uh, Drax. Like 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 when Rachel got with Joey, um, <laughs> I am gonna be. I don't and see it. It made no sense, but, <laughs> but, but, but it'll but happen it, because we've yeah. exhausted all the other plots. Is what yeah, you're suggesting. Yeah. The the other the other character I think suffers uh, as well in this is Peter Quill, because I I I think the problem is that I I mean I understand that you know his his story is at the center of the whole the whole mechanics of the plot, the ego thing, everything like that. But he spends a lot of that film very passive. He just, he does a lot of listening. He just does a lot of sitting around. He does a lot of accepting. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier that he's he's very, very eager to accept ego as, you know, as his dad and that everything's fine and they can, he can create a little ball of energy and play catch and all this kind of thing. You know, the clues in the name, you know, Peter, ego, right? It's it's like no yeah. nice person calls himself ego. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, and and I just I just think it does a little bit of a disservice to him in that he should be driving this story, and he's and he's not really. And and another point about ego is no good guy has a disembodied brain. We've learned that from RoboCop two. <laughs> Andrew has a theory that everything in the entire history of of, of pop culture can be brought down to a metaphor involving either Robocop or Robocop 2. Like, or Robo- Robocop 3 sometimes. <laughs> only in rare cases. Oh, I, I, until, I, until I'm presented with evidence to the contrary, I'm believing it. I'm going with you. <laughs> I don't see why not. Um, I, I, just, I just think that it, it's, it's a bit of a shame in that in the first film that wasn't the case. And, and, and it, you know, it ties into the, the deeper problem, I think, in that the, the midsection, there's a midsection chunk of this film which is really languid and it really needs 
either chopping or speeding up. And, you know, the first film didn't have that. The first film, from what I remember, and you know, it's been a while since I watched it, I'll be honest, but from the first film, from what I remember, it had more of a wallop to it in terms of pacing. This, it, it ebbs and flows a little bit. I mean, I, I personally don't think it gets any better than the last than the first 10 minutes with the, with Baby Groot dancing to Mr. Blue Sky and the big Leviathan monster being fought in the background. That was amazing. <laughs> But the credit sequence, the, intro, the introductory credit sequence, is is genuinely impressive. And I mean, I even I even like the um, the opening scene with the you know ninety five percent real Kurt Russell is apparently what what it says on the packaging. I'm not convinced by that. But the, uh, when 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 Drax goes inside the the monster's body, I thought that was a good idea. They all kind of laughed at him when when he said it'll be thicker. It, it it's thicker on the outside than on the inside. I think what he meant is that yeah. there'll be more soft tissue. Yes. On on, yes. on the inside. No. No. I it, I get what he was doing in that it's a cliche that happens in action movies a lot and also like Joan and the Whale and stuff. But um, like I think the the idea I like the idea of of Gamora and Peter pointing out the logical issue with the fact that skin is equally thick no matter which side you cut it in. Ideally, he probably should have been cutting up or down or sideways or stuff. But I think, yeah, I think Tony's actually Tony's spot on the yeah, money if there. He, with... If he never cut through the skin, he he would eventually just inv- eviscerate the inside of the creature, and it would just be a big bag of skin. Yes, a bag of limp skin. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was onto something. They they should have just let him work it out. <laughs> I like the I, idea. I possibly be digested, but <laughs> I mean that's that's the the risk he took. Yeah, Drax knew what he was doing, but. When we're talking about the um, when we're talking about the middle section of the film and Peter being a passive uh, protagonist, I actually do think I suspect that's the influence of the Empire Strikes Back at work there as well because you've got the same thing that happening with with Luke in the Empire Strikes Back, which is the idea that he goes off and he learns this secret history and he has this secret power and he sort of learns all this stuff about himself that also coincidentally involves his dad. The only issue is that I think the subplot in, in Empire involving say Han and Leia and the Millennium Falcon is much more interesting than the subplot in Guardians involving the Ravagers. Yeah. And rocket. Yeah, I liked. Um, there was more development in this movie of Yondu, and 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 I thought he was fantastic. And the 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 actor playing him, Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker is fantastic. Oh, he is. He's I, I I I I I really thought that was very good. I think we mi- I think we missed some kind of some great minor characters from 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 the first movie, like but the, the likes of Peter Serafinovich and uh, John, John C. Riley. Yeah, yeah. Um, that we didn't really have to 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 to, to the same extent in this. Yeah, it, it, this, some of the supporting characters weren't quite as good in this time around. But I think I think Yondu, I think it's almost universally been praised the whole Yondu stuff. And I th- I think I think the what, what I think I really appreciate the most. And again, this is where I think a lot of Marvel's f- films fall down is that Yondu's dead. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, he's dead and, and he, he's going to stay dead. Probably. He's going to stay dead. You know, I, I, I kind of hope because I think it really does land a punch at the end. I was genuinely choked up at the end of this film with that. Cause I think they, they really, they really put it together. Well, they really, you know, saw character development with Yondu, you know, in the first film, he's, he's a bit of a dick and he's, he's like a, a sub, a sub bad guy. Whereas in this, by the end, he's he's the true hero, and he's he really is Peter Quill's true father, really, and it's great. He's the father-in-law of the family. He's the grandfather of the family, basically. The daddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he is. He's. Um, and I mean, one of the things I really like about it, and I feel like I, you know, we're, we've been harsh on it because it, it's a good movie. It's it's not a great movie, but like there's something really 
And it was, it's a moment where I was both laughing and both like emotionally affected, which I think is a testament to James Gunn as a director and a writer, is the scene where Yondu is arguing with Rocket about how they're both fundamentally the same person because they had this horrible upbringing and they have this tough exterior that nobody can get through and all this sort of stuff. And it's basically a blue guy with a red fin on his head yelling at a CGI raccoon and, and in the most overall melodramatic fashion possible. But Michael Rooker sells it and it lands and it's kind of like in the middle of this giant CGI multicolor spectrum. I, I, I kind of teared up a little bit at that. It's a, it's a very difficult kind of acting because, yeah. because like I thought Dave Bautista was was good, especially for for a former kind of WWE star. Like he he's he, he's better than he ought to be. Like like in 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 uh, Spectre, I think he had one line with uh, four he's no letters. John Cena is what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah. But. Acting alongside a CGI character is difficult. Yeah, and you you see kind of like Dave Bautista um, with um, Baby Groot in front of him, and it, it's it's it kind it, it kind of seems like to me anyway. It seemed like Dave Bautista was like, "Am I? Is this what I'm meant to be doing? Am I?" <laughs> and and but I I I I I thought Michael Rooker was fantastic with the with, uh, the, with Rockets, the CGI yeah. um, characters. It really yeah. felt like he was in the room with them. Yeah. Um. Which 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 must be a real challenge, but he's nailed it. Yeah. And I mean, he's he's a veteran performer as well. Like it's not as if he came of age doing this stuff. Like Rooker's sort of like I always would imagine him as a more naturalistic, more sort of like grounded, sort of almost Brando esque character. So to see him like taking so so well to this sort of colorful kind yeah. of menagerie is, is fantastic and i do sort of te- i tear it's the most cliched scene imaginable i know because we're both the same person and it's like this is ridiculous but i feels it you know yeah like like i like those scenes kind of suffer from 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 the some of the partners in them like like whether it be rocket raccoon or slightly more CGI, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Oh. <laughs> but he was really good in those scenes, you yeah. know. Like, like they weren't quite working because, because, like, I think I think both Darren and I didn't like Rocket R- Raccoon. Um, I don't know what you thought of Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I, have, I have feelings about Sylvester Stallone, but we'll talk about those in in a moment. Uh, how did you feel about Rocket, Tony? I I I mean, I like Rocket. I don't think he works as well in this film as he does in the first one because I think, well, partly, you know, as as I think you said, that the subplot involving him isn't as inter- isn't as interesting as they think it is for a start, and also it feels a little bit like they're forcing him to be an absolute douchebag for the purposes of trying to make a plot point more than anything else and to make a character point. And they, you know, every, they, they took the fact that everyone liked in the fact, like the fact you got this angry little raccoon guy. who will just shout at you and, you know, swear and things like this. And they thought, Oh, let's give, let's do loads of that. You know, one of the things about this film, I wasn't sure about was the fact that they, and you know, I suppose you get this a lot with sequels and developing kind of ideas, but they took certain character p- points with this that from the first film people loved, like Drax's exuberance and Rocket's anger. And amped it up. And these kind of things. And th- Yeah, and they just amp it up and amp it up and amp it up. And it, there are times I think it just gets to the point where you go, okay, we get it now. Calm it down a bit. It's fine. I wonder if this is like a, a Marvel Studios thing in particular, because I, I think you see a lot of that with their second film. So with their the second films in the franchise. So for example, Thor The Dark World which I think most people would agree is one of the weaker uh, Marvel entries, if not the weakest, maybe Incredible Hulk. 
but it is the the one where you can tell that they looked at a focus group and said, what do people like about the first Thor? And let's turn all those to 11. So let's get more Darcy, uh, more uh, crazy scientist dude, uh, more scenes on Earth, uh, but also somehow more scenes in magical realms. Um, and let's throw in some 9-11 allegory and make sure the villain is paper thin as well. And you can tell, and even in like, say, the good sequels, like, for example, um, The Winter Soldier, there's a lot more of that where it's like, okay, well, people responded to the idea of Steve and Bucky having sort of a relationship with this strong, almost homoerotic overtone to it. So what we're going to do... Did is... they? I felt like all of that was just a um, no, people... kind of foreshadowing for the sequel. No, well, people people loved it. Like, I mean, it, it's big on the internet. Like, it's an incredible sort of like... There was a big Give Captain America Boyfriend movement that happened. Um, and you yeah. get, I think that with Winter Soldier, you, you amped up and they sort of turned into it. And it's like, so you get this heightened thing. So you have this I weird... anything that becomes big will have it. We'll, we'll have yeah. to be careful not to get too big. Um, have a lot of our fan sequel fiction. Podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, no, I, and I think there's an element of that with, with Guardians. Like, I do think it's it's the Marvel bloat is probably what's described as. Because it's this is two hours and a quarter long. Mm. There is no reason for it to be two hours and a quarter long. No. No, it's it's it is too long. It doesn't quite have the 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 necessary amount of plot for it to be that long, and I I think that it's it tries to it it tries to pull the same trick and then tries to not at the same time. It tries to do both. It tries to give you everything you loved from the first film and then try and do different things and advance the story and things like this. And you know, it, it, in places, it doesn't doesn't work. I think I think what does work is the the unspoken thing between Peter and Gamora. I really like that. I really think that Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana have genuine chemistry. And I think they're they're nicely developing that relationship. They're nicely matched and they they're not they're not rushing it. They're not giving you everything you want with that. Yeah. Immediately. In fact, I think Gamora comes out of this really well this entire film. And I I think everything with Peter, everything with the fact she's the only one who really is the one who goes, hang on a minute, this isn't right. What's going on here? Right, for a start. And then all the stuff with Nebula, which, which and Nebula comes out of it much better than the first film as well. So I think I liked everything with Gamora in it. And I, I'm quite heartened to hear she's going to get even more to do in number three mm. because I think she's great. Yeah, I think that was a good move to 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 give her, I guess, a, a bigger part and more development and, and another character to play with in Nebula. Yeah. Or certainly more scenes to play with her. Cause yeah, I, yeah, because, because there, was, there was very little of that kind of relationship in the first one. I mean, one of the things that sort of strikes me, and this is this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, is that Zoe Saldana, right? Zoe Saldana is is amazing. So she's done, she was in Avatar, which is, is was the highest grossing movie of all time. She's a major player in the Star Trek reboot. She's arguably the third lead in them. And she's the second lead in this massive Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. And yet, for some reason, she is not a star. She's not ubiquitous. She's not sort of exploded and you look at i don't know i just i find it zoe saldana is one of those people who consistently turns in good work and i'm disappointed mm. not to see more of her you know because i'm generally i think I've, i might have said on the podcast that, I, that i'm generally not not like a huge a huge fan of her i but i actually thought she was really good in this mm. I, I i mean i'm not saying that i've ever found anything particularly wrong I've, i just haven't really gotten the what the, the what the fuss was about i suppose well, neither has anybody else. From the fact that she's, yeah, yeah, I, she, I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm your. You're your, in the majority here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be that outside of the genre stuff, 
she's not really done anything that anyone can particularly remember. You know, I mean, she picks things sometimes that aren't always the most, you know, well well thought out. Things like Colombiana, which wasn't particularly very good. And she was in Live By Night recently, which which looked nice, but it but that's about the best thing about it, really. You know, and I think that the genre stuff she's great at because she she really seems to enjoy it and she she responds well to it but she's not quite had that break it. that Halle Berry moment has she you know do you know what i mean yeah yeah no that moment where like my mother would recognize her which i think is my my still my personal threshold for stardom yeah it's like yeah. if my mother knows an actor by name like that's when steve buscemi made it when he stopped being funny teeth guy and started being steve buscemi that was the point at which i knew that you know that he he, he had arrived yeah well like i suppose you don't really know if somebody's any good until they've done something uh different from these kind of uh genre blockbuster movies and done it well unless you're michael rucker in which case <laughs> you're in one of these uh genre blockbuster movies and and you really kind of demonstrate That's... what 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 you can do well to be fair like people would argue that rucker's well proven his credentials with, oh, like, no, Henry no. And stuff. oh yeah no, no no i i mean i mean that like this is something he can add to his reel yeah. rather than kind of it just being in a big this is that movie. this is that time he got painted blue yeah yeah and what... he didn't i mean i mean in a movie like this you don't i i suppose there's there's less for the actors to do because there's there's all of this kind of spectacle that people are kind of um, expecting yeah answer. yeah and maybe flocking to the movie to see i don't know well, i mean we don't want to talk about spectacle i mean the ego the planet ego's planet was reportedly the and now, to be fair, this is from the production team who worked on the film, so it may not be an unbiased source. The, but the, the most complex they, special they effect of all time. Set. Yeah, the most complex special effect of all time. Something like uh, Tetra Googles of, of polygons and stuff like that, rendering it. Apparently it's an amazing, it was an amazing oh, wow. accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I actually do think, I love the production design of the film. Like, I love the colours of it. Like, one of the things yeah, that I like... I, I really like the porcelain kind of creepy diorama. That, that, that he'd put together that ego had yeah yeah like that should have been your first warning sign like you know sure he's built his planet on like a graveyard full of murdered children uh but the fact he has a diorama room yeah. ready for this presentation and a weird bit when he's like and then i found life and there's like him, a little girl like, standing above a little girl and it's like what, what what's going on what is the context for this scene yeah, and, it, and the first question is like, when did you meet my mother? Yeah. <laughs> like, How old was she? Yeah. You, have you read The Time Traveler's Wife? Because that's super <laughs> yeah, creepy. that's exactly what I was thinking. Um. I, th- I think that the stroke of genius, though, with Ego is is by casting someone like Kurt Russell. And I know originally they wanted um, Matthew McConaughey, I think. He, he was he, he seriously like approached for it. Uh, and it would have had the same kind of effect, really. I think the genius is that you could, you know, you could so easily have a character like Ego be this very spacey arch kind of, you know, galactic man. But when you cast Kurt Russell, and, you know, we talked about it earlier, but when you cast someone who's a very earthy, you know, oh, come on, man, I'm Jack Burton from Big Drum in Little China, that kind of guy, you've, you you immediately are brought back down to earth. You are, you know, Peter Quill is immediately, um, you know, disarmed by this guy because he appears in the form of a, of a you know a 70s swaggering cool dude that's it now, if, it's if it had been Harrison Ford for example Pe- you know, it's Pe- that's... Peter Quill's not looking at him and thinking oh that's Snake Plissken <laughs> <laughs> but he hasn't got the eye patch if you'd have cast it, if you'd have cast someone like um, oh I don't know I'm trying to, trying to if you cast a British character actor for example any British character actor yeah if you'd cast like 
a Charles Dance, right? It would it would have been very different, right? It it would have possibly been actually quite awesome because he's awesome in everything. But still, you get the sense though he's, that he would have more scolded Peter into coming along rather than trying to no, convince him. He, yeah, he's yeah, he's like, come this now, is and... just a family business, Peter. Uh, while while butchering a deer, <laughs> yeah. um... ego always pays his debts. Yeah. <laughs> but. Um... No, because I actually did, and I loved, one of the things I actually quite liked about it is because Ego is a ridiculous sort of 60s comic book concept. It's a living planet, and at one stage it's a planet with a face on it. But it's also, like, it's, there's a moment where, like, his ship is designed so it clearly looks like an eye. When he takes the group on a tour of his planet, it's on what very clearly looks like a dental dam. Um... Like there's there's this recurring sense that ego is actually like a giant face and he's just riding around himself. Like even when they when Gamora and Nebula go in to explore the canals, they very clearly look like ears. Um, it's there's this sort of yeah. like very sixties quality to it. Very yeah, sort of like hokey. Yeah, there's kind of like there's a kind of a when when the stairs go out to to join the little walking platform onto his um the place where they're going it's kind of like a really tripey sort of like bit of <laughs> like almost a bit of pancreas that yeah. just stretches out onto the yeah no I, I really like the production design of it yeah. and i mean even the fact that he's like the way he disintegrates as well and the fact that he's a brain like yeah it's, it's not as if he was a, he like and then i came into being and it's just like a little spark of light or something <laughs> no no it's an actual literal human <laughs> human brain floating in space <laughs> yeah that, that, that was that was funny. It was just like, yeah, and I was the brain. <laughs> no questions. We'll move on then. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do. I really liked. I liked the way the film looks, and I like the way that it has a unique visual style to it. In terms of it's very bright, it's very colorful. It's lots of neon as well, and it's sort of it distinguished it. I think from say that we were talking about like the Marvel cinematography being flat, but even stuff like say the DCEU or whatever, where Snyder has this sort of no color policy, but this sort of approach to like something vibrant and exciting where you can have a talking duck played by seth green oh is that seth green yeah um oh, you're wondering what he's been how, doing howard the duck yeah um is, who, are they going to reboot that too I, I wouldn't be surprised i wouldn't be surprised yeah the, obviously something that people really liked from the f- first movie was lots of small little ships being destroyed <laughs> um, they, they did that again it's it, like like they hadn't learned their lesson it's like well, is, let's let let's send a large ship after. No, no. Let let's send let's send like tons of tiny little ships, and they're, I, they're all going to be destroyed exactly the same way. Except that it seemed like up until the point, up until the hour mark of the movie, there was a lot of uh, PG like twelve violence. Where it's like where where all of these ships are getting destroyed, and it's like but oh they're remotely hurt. controlled. Yeah, and then there's the there's all of the kind of non lethal weaponry that that uh, Rocket Raccoon uses <laughs> to um, do the Ravagers. To, yeah, yeah, and then and then as soon as like an hour has passed, presumably they're thinking, oh, networks are going to put this on at nine o'clock, <laughs> and it's got to reach the ten o'clock. <laughs> and then you're past and, the watershed, yeah, and you can start gonna shoving guys swear in, and you can and start shoving kill, guys yeah. out airlocks and having yeah. them bleed into the void. Exactly. Because I actually did like the Ravager subplot. I really didn't like, and one of the reasons I didn't really didn't like was it was so tonally jarring. Because it's like, and particularly because Nebula, Nebula's involved in the mutiny, and so she's responsible for those big trains of all those dead bodies and stuff. Um, and yet at the end, she sort of gets off the hook for that. And it's because, oh well, I didn't kill any named characters. It's like, oh well, I saved Rocket. Yeah, it 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 didn't quite 
land as well, I think. The whole, I mean, I might be in the minority here, and I know every, a lot of other people found it really funny, but I just didn't particularly find Taserface all that funny. You know, I, th- I thought it was like a, a one-off joke that was just milked enormously throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, 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 I, I, I didn't, I didn't, the, the amount of time spent with it as well. Like, like, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's, and and where whereas I, I was <laughs> on the flip side, I really enjoyed the tape gag. Oh, we got any tape? We got any tape for the bomb? Nobody, nobody in my showing was laughing except me. Nobody, and it was full. It was full, and I was I was looking round and I looked at my girlfriend. And I went, Why is nobody laughing at this? This is funny. <laughs> I didn't get it. Yeah, loads of people were laughing at Taserface, so maybe I've just got my my humour back, you know, all the wrong way around. But maybe it's just that I think. Not all of the jokes, I think, land. And, and tonally, like you say, there is a bit of a disconnect in places. Yeah. Like, let's brutally murder all these characters. But it's okay because any of the characters we care about survive until the end when Yondu dies. But, you know, like, it's uh, the characters... Then get Yondu kills a lot of them. <laughs> some some of whom I quite liked. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the doctor's who's drinking <laughs> the beer yeah. and then his beer smashes. And you're like, oh, good. And then it comes back and kills him. <laughs> Just in case it missed and him. And like your... Like, or the bit where Baby Groot sort of throws your man to his death. Yeah. You know, it's like a little cute grudge match, except no, he just flung your man off a piece of scaffolding. Yeah, but they, they they degraded Baby Groot, so it's okay. <laughs> here's here's the thing, actually. One of the things that bothered me about the climax of the film, right? Because one of the things I liked about the original Guardians of the Galaxy was it stuck away from the climax of having Earth in danger, which is such a terrible cliche in modern blockbusters because it even happens in the, the recent Star Trek films. The first two recent Star Trek films had to put Earth in danger in order to generate a sense of sort of, you know, scale and catastrophe i like that the original guardians was like here's a planet full of people who are who look different than you and who are different than you but hey look it's john c Riley, so you'll care about them and i thought that worked quite well i thought that in the second film the focus on this random destruction that's, in that's, earth that's that's what they did in um gangs in new york it's like here's a whole lot of irish people but here's john c Riley. you can care about him <laughs> john c Riley is the key to empathy i think um, if only we could all think of other people as john c Riley, the world would be a much better place but i do but do you know do you know what? i i don't understand though darren off, off the back of what you just said why if they were going to show earth why didn't they show like other planets yeah Oh, they did show some other planets, but not as much. Like yeah, they they showed the the, the woman holding woman the baby, holding the baby, and, and the, oh, they did, they did the little cute Ragnars. But they're not as like it's it gets nowhere near the attention of this little banana splits place in 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 the middle of Missouri, isn't it? Missouri or Mississippi? Um, uh, yeah, it was Missouri. Yeah, and just uh, that that sort of bugged me a little bit because that was I, I I thought it was strange because. Peter returning to Earth is obviously going to be a big, huge plot point when it when it finally happens. I just felt like shoehorning it into the climax here was like, well, look, you don't care about any of these blue-skinned people or any of these, you know, CGI cute little dancing dinosaurs or this woman and her baby. Maybe you care about a diner and some cars. Mm. The Earth was in jeopardy, but 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 the real stakes were were that or the diner. emotion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The entire Earth was in jeopardy. Yeah. Before we go, I want to talk a little bit about nostalgia of the film. Oh, yeah. And it kind of um, infantilization, um, I, I, I guess, of the audience. Because it, it, it's, I, I guess it's for people our age. Because um, all kind of um, Knight Rider and... Well, David Hasselhoff is the big thing. Yeah. Um, who Ch- records a rap. Did you, say, did you stay until the end of the film, Tony? 
Um, yeah, I think I think I did. I think I did. You hear the David Hasselhoff rap? I didn't. Darren quite liked it. I did not care for it. I don't think I did actually. I'm sure I saw. I'm sure I stayed till the. I'm, I'm gutted. I'm gutted I missed it. It was written by by James Gunn himself and Sean Gunn, and it's basically it's the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise from Peter Quill's point of view, wrapped by David Hasselhoff. It's it's amazing. There are barely words to describe how awesome it is. Uh, and by awesome, I mean so terrible that it loops back around. It's like everything involving David Hasselhoff. Darren, Darren, Darren has a new karaoke favorite. It's it's no longer "She's a Lady" by Tom Jones. <laughs> I wish Andrew were making that up. By the way, uh, that's yeah, that that's yeah. She's a lady. There are no words, <laughs> <laughs> but there are lyrics. But Tony, what did you make of the film's nostalgia? I I think yeah, I think it's it's part of of what Guardians is so like loved for though i mean i th- I think that it wouldn't be guardians without that pop cultural aspect to it you know i mean the bit where the hassle ego turns into hasselhoff is is wonderful you know it is it's one of those moments i just laughed out loud i was like oh fantastic perfect because it's a gag that's been earned throughout the film yeah you know and well, it's been properly set up and it's been oh, sort yeah. of emotionally invested like that that's what accounts for a lot of the popularity of 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 uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, absolutely. Like, it, it... Yeah, it's what makes it unique in that sense, and the music is the other big thing with it. You know, the the awesome mix and everything like that. That's really took off. You know, to the point where I mean, I love all that dad rock stuff anyway. But a lot, lots of people out there now really enjoy that, these tunes. You know, um, and it, it is it is part of it. I did find myself a bit surprised though that the big Fleetwood Mac song at the climax was the chain rather than Oh Daddy. <laughs> Maybe maybe they just thought, well, we've got father and son. Yeah, we don't want to layer it on too heavily. Um, if we have a solid ten minutes of dad themed rock at the climax, like it's, yeah, it's a bit much. Dad themed dad rock. Um, but no, I I think it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Guardians without the the acknowledgement of of seventies and eighties pop culture and and you through Peter Quill who grew up with all this stuff who grew up with that vision of earth through that lens i think it's it's one of those things that never it never feels forced with guardians it, it feels natural as part of that world i just sort of agree with that i think i think that like the thing about guardians thing that i really like is that it's it's this metaphor almost for this repressed or this sort of arrested development childhood in that peter like there's a great line in the first film where he's talking about like he, he can't talk about the day his mother dies he talks about the day he left earth instead and there's a sense that he's sort of been frozen in this stage where he's still connected to stuff like Knight Rider. And I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff that I really love about the film that's tied into nostalgia. So I like, for example, the fact that the the Sovereign are basically, their fighters are like arcade games, complete to the sound effects. Like the sound effects have the old Atari sound effects and stuff like that. Or the fact that the spacesuits are bubble wrap. Like they're designed with CGI to resemble bubble wrap, which is great because it means if you're a kid playing at home and you want to play Guardians of the Galaxy, you just wrap yourself in in bubble wrap. Oh, and you're like, don't don't be telling the kids to do that. Not over your face. <laughs> That's very dangerous. Not over... public safety announcement, everyone. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason that the CGI doesn't go over their face when they do it. I'd like to take this point to to distance myself from Darren's from... comments. Yeah, uh... but but I I like that aspect. I like the idea that Peter is still emotionally like a a ten year old kid, and he, you know I like. Like the fact that the movie is so explicitly dated. One of the things that I found interesting was it's the introduction takes place in 1980, and then the film cuts to 34 years later, which means the movie takes place in 2014, which is a very odd period detail. Like it's not 37 years later, it's not 36 years later, it's 34 years later. Hmm. That jumped out at me. That seemed like a very odd choice. 
Mm, it is, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that, actually. I hadn't thought of that. I wonder if sort of Chris Pratt is sitting there thinking, well, there's no way they're getting my real age into this film. <laughs> like, damn those well, IMDb we, people. Yeah, I guess we don't know. We don't know how old. He he says he came back three times. So we we, we, we don't know whether, whether uh, Chris Pratt is like, 28 or... I I thought that was the metaphor at the start where his seed blooms on Earth. It was not exactly the most subtle of metaphors, by the way. Travelling around the world planting seeds. Travelling around the galaxy planting seeds. It's not the most subtle deadbeat dad um, sort of metaphor. There is is one thing with Ego as well, which is why does he have to give a brain cancer? (laughs) Why so specifically? Like... I mean, it's really nasty. I mean, if, if you can, if you have to kill her, right? At least, like, just give her a stroke or not. Like, yeah, just like well, it's out of mercy. Yeah, brain. Yeah, but brain cancer. <laughs> like, that's just nasty. He felt like, um, oh, she's gonna miss her son a lot when I kidnap him. So I better take care of her first. <laughs> that would be the kind thing to do. Because I'm all about compassion. But let's do it in the most torturously painful and long way. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. Um, so the, the the child will be so emotionally vulnerable at that point that it's just going to run into my arms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even when I show him my crazy serial killer diorama room. <laughs> but he, at, at that point, he was at the age where he wouldn't have had any like moral problem with that. <laughs> What? Yeah, crush, kill, kill. Oh, oh the kid. Yeah, yeah. Kid. <laughs> oh, you mean, you mean for the entire, kids of no concept oh, for the entire oh. universe? Well, I do actually. I think that's one of the nice things about Baby Groot is you actually get that sense of like a childlike morality where there's no no morality. Where Groot very clearly is Baby Groot is doing what Baby Groot wants to do and is pure unchecked id. I think I think Groot is just the the, the shining star of this entire thing. It's what what they're doing with Groot is wonderful, you know, even to the point where you get the the post credit sequence of him as a moody teenager in his room. It's just what it's just great. It's, it's really well played, and I think it reinforces that family theme very very well. And he's also adorable. Yeah, like he he, like oh, even yeah. Do you know what I actually enjoyed <laughs> the Ravager um, scene where they're like, "Show can I crush him? Can I smash him with a rock?" And he's like, "No, no he's too adorable to kill." <laughs> I, I I enjoyed in this in the scene where uh, Gamora says, "Get out of the way!" Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and it's just at like, the opening scene, hello, and, <laughs> yeah, and he waves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, damn it, he's just so adorable. <laughs> yeah, I can't be mad at you. Yeah, even yeah. in the middle of the the, the sequence where he's bringing all the, the th- he's trying to steal the 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 item from the the. Uh, the bad guy and he keeps bringing all the wrong things and he's no not that <laughs> wonderful <laughs> do you guys have a fridge where you keep human toes um, but um when we're talking about the nostalgia though the the thing this is one of the things i didn't like about the nostalgia where i thought it was a little overwrought was the bit at the end where he's eulogizing yondu and he's doing so like by reference to david hasselhoff i feel like you've had the david hasselhoff reference earlier in the film like there's no need to say like my in a way my dad kind of was david hasselhoff that feels like it feels like that sort of i think there's a thing with popular culture and particularly modern popular culture where we we reference rather than we explain so we sort of we create these connections by referencing things that people are familiar with and so we sort of it's it's like reference jokes it's like it's like two broke girls where it's like ah it's like this thing you like or family guy where it's like hey what if this thing met this other thing i feel like there's a bit of that at the climax where they're, they're eulogizing yeah, young and 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 it, it would have 
like yeah and 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 it was it was it was more added to a movie that it went went on quite a bit did and and the reason why they had to do that was because uh Myondu had just died so they had to have this kind of um like spock being fired out in a torpedo moment yeah, but you didn't um, need the, but, the monologue about david Hasselhoff. you could just said look i met my dad he was a really terrible person but yondu was my father problem i had with it was that um yeah peter quill had uh had to lose two um fathers like in rapid succession where he learns um, that um, well, that learns... ego is 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 evil, and and then and then he has this redemption of Yondu, and and realizing that he had a, a father all along, and oh no, I don't. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I, I had a father for like ten seconds, and well, I think that it counts retroactively, to be fair. And I do like I like the idea. I don't like the idea in films that like your biological family is inherently good and you need to learn that you will always get along and all your differences with your biological family will be resolved because I don't think that's the reality of the situation as comforting as it would be to believe. I don't think everybody will be able to resolve everything with their biological family. I think that staying in, in an environment that is toxic because you have a blood relation to somebody is not necessarily the healthiest approach and I think the popular culture is... Sort of, I think the popular culture leans a bit heavily on that. And I like that Guardians is like, actually, it turns out... What have I been doing all these years? <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is a horrible... I like the way that the, the podcast is basically Andrew's therapy. Um, but I do like... I like that Guardians is like, by the way, you have these biological relationships. And you know what? Like, your biological relationship to ego may not be healthy but you do you have a father you was he, he may be your father but he's not your daddy yeah with with all these movies like guardians of the galaxy 2 and fast and the furious the next the the next uh, social networking platform uh, it'll be a bit like tinder except for finding yourself a family <laughs> it really will, so, yeah. we are looking for a son that you can do heist uncle with. yeah, yeah. <laughs> for adventures um, yeah yeah, it is like it, you just sort of slot in. It's like kooky uncle, um, <laughs> adorable teenager, um, that sort of thing. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Yeah, love that line. It, it was in it was in the WhatsApp group, and I had no idea what you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I was uh, this guy nodding emoji. <laughs> um, Pretend yeah. that I know what he's talking about, and I'm yeah, just uh, yeah. and, uh, fake it till you make it. Another thing that made that made um, Yon, Yondu so good was 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 that line where it's like, "You look like Mary Poppins." Is Mary Poppins cool? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm Mary, Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> just, just own it. Uh, that really. was brilliant. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. What, what about the after credit sequences? Because there were five of them. No, not, not, not so much. Um, I like the um as uh, as Tony said. Yeah, the um the Groot as, the teenage uh, teenage teenager was good. I didn't, I didn't like the Ravager stuff. I don't think you liked that either. Um, where where it had um... well that was an in joke for fans because that's the original Guardians team from the sixties and seventies is it's these characters because oh. the char- the characters who actually appeared in the film were were from two thousand and eight by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning the original um, Guardians of the Galaxy characters are those including Yondu but they're the ones played by Sylvester Stallone Ving Rhames Michelle Yeoh and Michael Rasko okay uh, which I thought was it was cute but I'm not sure it justified the attention given to it I thought that like if you're going to cut the movie that was an indulgence that you could cut for example well it, it seems like it, that that's potentially teeing up volume three you know in that they're gonna they're gonna crop up as maybe a rival team or something like that you know so it was 
Yeah, there was the there was the other one as well, wasn't there, with the sovereign and um, and Adam, Adam, Adam Warlock, who's going to be the presumably the villain of um, of the next one. Well, I think actually I like the idea. I actually really like the idea because that gives you the um, that gives you sort of the the family theme continuing to like the child. So I imagine that's where you go with Peter from here. So you have him losing his mother in the first one. Finding his deadbeat dad and losing his deadbeat dad, but finding his real father in the second one, and then maybe becoming having that. And then losing him. (laughs) And then losing him. And then becoming like, I imagine the third film is probably going to follow that theme and have him almost become a father figure, no? Yeah, yeah. Mm, Um, Could be. Could be. But yeah, the only thing I I was surprised about was that we didn't get an Avengers tie in. I really expected an Infinity War or Infinity Gauntlet or whatever it's going to be called. Yeah, I like that we did. They, they, they even, they even um, knocked that out by um, at some point. I think Gamora says to Nebula, "Oh, you're, you're, you're never going to kill Thanos." So, so yeah, because uh, that's what that's Iron Man's yeah, job. Yeah, um, so somebody else is going to do that. <laughs> yeah, Robert Downey Jr. is higher on the call sheet. I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, but I liked I liked that it didn't because one of the things I didn't like about the first one was the Thanos stuff, which was very clearly sort of setting up your Infinity War or your Avengers 47 stuff down the line. Like I like that Guardians was allowed to be this relatively almost self-contained thing. This volume two, and it was it was quite self-contained, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, that that struck me as I left. I thought, you know, that that is a very self-contained sequel in the marvel universe and you know that's that is a good thing that is a good thing even if it doesn't completely work in in on its own terms it, it, at least it has the strength of conviction to not have to you know have a, a, a cut to you know ha- well even having an avenger on on earth at the point where the big ego thing is there do you know what i mean you're like, you're like well who was the only who was the only avengers cast member we could rope in paul rod <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's cheap. Paul Rudd sipping coffee, going, "Oh crap, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to deal with this." I've, I've, yeah, that was the thing with with Iron with Ant Man. It was like, who's the most affordable Avenger? Yeah, yeah, they 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 they, they could have put Stan Lee in in in, in the little cafe that gets uh... oh destroyed. Well, you know that they had to film. They started filming his his cameos in bulk now. Really. Yeah, the scenes for Guardians Volume 2 were shot apparently at the same time as his scenes from Doctor Strange. And also, I believe, his scenes from a future uh, movie. So I'm not sure which one in particular. And there's some speculation as to why that is. The official line is that it's because uh, they want to save his travel hassle. So they want him to just fly to Los Angeles or wherever for, you know, for a week and then just knock all these things out and not to worry about it for years. The unofficial line is the worry that he's now ninety odd. Well, yeah, he is getting on and up. He is getting up there, isn't he? I mean, <laughs> you know, which is not. A th- I imagine that's not the pitch they made to him. But so, uh, you'll be dead soon, Stan. Let's get this done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we want you all the way through to Thanos. So, um, <laughs> uh, Stan, uh, we just wanna. What, what? What did you guys? What did you guys think of the? Um, the cameo he has in this because it sort of suggests he's Uatu the Watcher, doesn't it? I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> some yeah. Some people have said that it's that it's their favorite. I quite like him as the uh, strip club DJ in in Deadpool. In Deadpool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I liked him in was it the Amazing Spider-Man two where he's just wearing the headphones and completely oblivious. In that it's a it's a gag that would work if it wasn't Stan Lee. Because one of the things that I don't like about the Stanley cameos in general is that they're very obtrusive because you can tell from the camera's positioning, this is a character you're meant to pay attention to. Like my mom, when we watch these movies, is like, why does that man keep popping up? And we keep telling her who it is and she keeps forgetting. But every time it's like, why is the camera bothering with that guy? 
Yeah, yeah, it kind of t- uh, it can take you out of the kind of world of the movie, but also it's fun. It is fun. I mean, and he's kind of yeah. I, I am dying for a Stanley cameo where he walks up to someone and goes, "Oh look, a sailboat." I would, I would just die at that if it was like the mole rats thing. I'd just, I'd just die at that. That'd be the greatest cameo ever. But I, I actually, I do, I do like your idea that he's the Watcher, that he is uh, Uatra the Watcher. I also, yeah, that, that's what I thought of, and I don't even, I, I'm more familiar with comic books in um, second hand, yeah. as in not second hand comic books, but, but from hearing. hearing other people talk about them. And I was thinking that when watching it, is 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 this Owatu the Watcher? Yeah, is he sort of popping between and I'm dimensions? I'm glad somebody else has confirmed this for me. <laughs> and, and now it's law. Yeah. I did also like there was a bit at the end, you know, in the very in the very 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 last uh, credit scene where they're walking away from him and he's complaining. And I was kind of like, I was wondering, is that maybe a little bit what Stan Lee feels like when he goes to the Marvel offices at the moment, <laughs> where he's like, "Wait, I've got great ideas to tell you." And they're like, oh. <laughs> There's there's a very good sketch that um, oh, Key and Peel Key and Peel do um, yeah where it's Stanley kind of like arriving and it's all a lot of millennial writers and he has all of these ideas for um, uh, for old age themed superheroes <laughs> yeah yeah all right then well with that with that in mind uh, Tony just to to recap a bit from the start just to to give us some headlines where people can find you and what you're up to super quickly uh, Black Hole Media on t- at Black Hole Media on Twitter uh, for my general stuff uh, you can find my X-Files podcast The X-Cast at the X underscore cast which Darren is also on uh, semi-regularly yay. and yay and uh, also I did like the uh, the X-Files the X-Files gag maybe this is just because I'm sort of fixated on the show but I did like the reference where was it Peter was saying it's like Sam and Diane from Cheers and it's, he's like no it's not and he's like okay it's like some other crazy show where somebody's paranoid all the time and the other person is open to extreme possibilities it's like, but then he's like, "There's no show like that," and you're like, "I forgot that he got abducted from Earth in 1986 or whatever." <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten about that actually. Yeah, but yeah, you can find you can find that there. And uh, if you want to find my new Star Trek podcast, just uh, find us at Trek FM, uh, and you can find that through there. Primitive Culture, that's called. So yeah, um, that's me. Perfect. Um, we'll, we'll include those links in the show notes as well for everybody. Um, Fantastic. What about yourself, Andrew? What would you like to plug this week? No, no, nothing that I'm doing myself. I, I've I've been enjoying um, Nora McDonald live. He he seems to take a break for about a year or two, um, and then come back. Uh, last episode was uh, September two thousand and sixteen, and they mentioned in it how they're they're not really getting the whole podcasting because they're taking a break and and then uh, forgetting how they do podcasts. And I noticed that he seems to have also lost all of his sponsors. Probably because... Um, he hasn't actually been podcasting. Right, yeah, and probably also for being like horrendously offensive. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've, 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 I've been enjoying that. So have, have a listen. Perfect. All right. Well, you can follow us on Twitter and at, at the two fifty. You can follow me personally at Darren underscore movie. Oh, movie. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your, your, your book? Ah, we've talked enough about the book. But... No, because <laughs> people will forget, Darren. All right, I have a book coming out at the end of the year on the X-Files, which I'm very, very proud of and which I plug at every available opportunity. You can find it on Amazon. It's called Opening the X-Files, A Critical History of the Original Show. It's a great way to catch up if you're very excited about the upcoming 11th season or even if you just want something, if you have a family member or whatever who is interested in the show who'd like a big academic textbook full of interesting observations and he- heavily researched and footnote sources. You know, because everybody loves those. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you can hit us up at, at the 250. Um, you can hit me up at, at Darren underscore Mooney. You can hit Andrew up at... AQU. 
I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. I had to think for a second. How do you spell my name? Perfect. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. And thanks again for, for coming on, Tony. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, oh, no. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great. All right. And we'll... Uh, thanks we'll... very much, Tony. All right. And we'll talk. We'll see. We'll be back next week, hopefully. Awesome. Cheers. Bye.